Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Today, joining us once again, we have Julian Rabbit Murdoch. Good evening. And we also welcome back our friend from the Game Design Roundtable, David Heron. Hi. Finally, we are joined by Rob Davio, designer of Board Game Geek's Game of the Year, Pandemic Legacy. Hello, co-designer, co-designer, but hello. Well, the other guy isn't here. Yes. So for the purposes of this podcast, <laughs> Rob, yeah, so, congratulations. Yeah, it's, all, it's all me. So proud uh, of you. Well done. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Okay, so we were all gathered together this past weekend uh, for, for yet another RabbitCon. Uh, we're another year older. Uh, another we gathered gathered in the wilderness once again for for a long weekend of of board games, and uh, so this topic sort of stems from a conversation that Heron and I had in the during the drive back to Boston, uh, which was that we both I think kind of felt like uh, we had trouble finding the the Goldilocks party game that would have suited us, right? The 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 party game that that can sort of sustain a large number of people without really sort of compromising whatever it is that really makes us get into a board game. So the the way I'd put it is is you know in pre at previous rabbit cons there's there's always been that that one game that sort of you you always see it sitting out. People are always playing it. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago it was Seven Wonders. Uh, a year or so ago it was um, Lords of Waterdeep. And I don't think we we quite had that game sort of make an appearance this year. But uh, you know, Heron, you and I sort of ended up in a a weird sort of um, existential angst on on the drive home because we couldn't figure out what exactly was missing from sort of the the more social and. Uh, uh, large-scale parlor games, I guess let's call them, uh, that we were playing at uh, at RabbitCon. Uh, Julian? Can, can, can I just ask what we mean by a party game? Because yeah, when I think, when you say the word go. party game, I yeah, think no. uh, we're yeah. playing Pictionary. Well, I have to jump in and say no game you describe qualifies as either a party game or a parlor game or close to it. Okay. <laughs> so what is it that you think that's missing? Because like party game, I think of rock band. I think of things where everybody's had a little too much to drink. And and Rob, I think you once famously described all sort of big party games as guess information X minus information Y. Yep, with and, restriction and, Y. With the restriction Y. With charades and Pictionary and Telestrations and all those kinds of things. And, and to be fair, at Rabicon... We had two copies of Code Names, which is that formula, right? Guess Information X with Restriction Y. Great game. Two copies of that were on the table almost nonstop. So maybe you guys didn't play much of it, but that was clearly the the one. It may not have been one that you enjoyed that much or that didn't f- scratch a certain itch, but I'm trying to get what you think okay. you're missing here. Uh, I think for me, so th- the thing is, like, I'm probably a little wishy-washy on the exact terms because... Uh, for me, most most party games like I, they they don't even really register as as things I'm 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 often very interested in, right? So like I guess I'm looking at, like the party version of Agricola, let's say, or the the, the right. party version <laughs> of right, okay, hold on. So I'm on I'm on three moves ahead here, so I need to readjust my barometer. <laughs> right, you right. Just readjust your brain if we're talking about the party version of Agricola. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, okay. All right. I think let's let's try to let's try to recontextualize. Um, uh, the conversation was about um, games that require a fair amount of investment 
that have a great deal of payoff and ultimately like make you feel great about a bunch of decisions that you make. In the past, we've talked about seven wonders. Um, I think we can go further back. And uh, I, I, I think for a while, everyone wanted to play Battlestar Galactica or, or, or something like that. And I think the point was, is that this year, um, oh, another, another year, it was, what's that, what's that game? It's like, um, like Roman and Greek gods and there's a boat and there's lots of cool miniatures. Cyclades? Cyclades, right? Uh, Zombicide. That was another one that a lot of people, people played. Uh, Dead of Winter was one that got played a lot, a lot, a lot. And this time, not only I think neither Rob or I sort of hit that new game of that level that really engaged us, we didn't really see one that got played a lot. Like there wasn't a game that got broken out, taught to a bunch of of you know that seats four or five. One person says this is a great game, teaches it to them, and then that sort of within our little our little sphere for four days viral sort of virally spreads and now everyone's played it. Okay. Um, so I'm wondering why we're not putting code names into this definition. Cause it seems to match all your criteria in that I saw it. Well, played. There's not a lot of investment. Right. No, it, it, yeah. So you're saying what you felt like you were missing a game with some teeth but that just really got under people's skin, right? Like yeah. it wasn't a part, right? So it's not a party game, like a accessible to many different people with mm-hmm. many different interests. And when they played it, they're like, this works for me. And that was much broader than some of the games. Like War of the Ring isn't going to appeal to some people. Totally and it only really seats two. And it seats mm-hmm. two. So you're Seven Wonders, you know, I still can, I, well, I love the game, but I consider it, um, you know, brilliant in that scaling people up doesn't mm-hmm. substantially increase the play time it increased yeah. the scoring time which is about half the play time but it doesn't increase the actual play time so the, the the second part of the conversation maybe we can just you know put it all on the table was was we had this conversation of like well why don't we just play seven wonders why don't we play play this you know i i wish we had just done that i wish we had just played uh lords of water deep because of this disappointment because of sitting right. down and, and investing all this time um and and we we our, our wheels kind of spun trying to piece together one what was it that we got from those other games and two why the games that we played didn't trigger that so, so maybe we should approach it from that angle, right? So if I think about the crop of current games uh, that, that sort of we're getting a lot of talk, right? So skipping Pandemic Legacy, which didn't come out because I don't think we had a fresh copy. I think if we'd had a brand new fresh copy, maybe people would have wanted to run the full first season of Pandemic Legacy, and that would have been a fun Rabicon thing to do. We certainly did that, I think, with a Game of Risk Legacy when it first came out. We had a Rabicon copy that did like eight games um, in a row, um, some of that may be that now Rob shows up with prototypes, and so we yeah. play all those things instead. Everyone's, everyone's played those games like two years ago when I was begging you to play them as prototypes. Yeah, so too much Rob Davio is basically what we're saying is the problem there. But, I believe But if it. I think about things that get a lot of talk, um, Gravwell, uh, you know, Codename certainly is on that list, Istanbul, Ashes... Uh, time stories. These were all sort of the big hit games of the last year. They all saw playtime. So maybe you didn't play them. Maybe that's just a sort of time management and oh, yeah. and leaping on things. But like 
they, they all had significant. I saw every one of those games out. I didn't play them because I was mostly interested in playing older games. So I played a ton of Caverna and, and, and I played Splendor and I played a game of Seven Wonders and all that. So maybe it's more of a is there something lacking from this new crop that you feel like you were getting from, say, 2013, 2014 games? Well, I, I think, you know, kind of like I, I totally accept there were, there were probably games that totally would have hit on that level uh, for, for me and, and David. Pro- probably those games were floating around Rabicon. Maybe we didn't maybe we didn't encounter them. But I did. But the thing that sort of stuck with me was um, trying to figure out exactly what made some of the games that uh, Heron and I have listed, uh, what made those games work. Right, because I I think that is is what I was getting stuck on. Because like for for instance, um, a game that really missed pretty hard with me uh, was Legendary, uh, which is a very involved uh, card game that can be played with a a number of people, and it's part of a series. The version I played was um, a Predator Legendary or mm-hmm. Legendary Predator. It's it's a card game based on the Predator movies. And you know it's got lots of great theming. Uh, it's got a card in it with the with the dude going, "I'm a sexual tyrannosaur," and I mean that. So what's not the love? What? Right. Yeah, really. That, that's sort of straight up my alley. But that was a game where I felt like, okay, so this was a game that was clearly designed to be able to absorb a pretty large uh, group of players and sort of keep them invested and engaged uh, for a number of hours. Uh, But that was a case of a game that just completely fell flat for me. Uh, I think in part because it hid, in order to be able to absorb that many players, uh, it had sort of shrunk the amount that any one person could do or control like the amount of like things you were actually engaged with minute to minute in that game seemed fairly small right like each turn you had a couple actions that were fairly straightforward based on your hand and then the game would sort of cycle back around a lot of that game felt like it was designed to uh sort of run almost automatically like it the administration part of legendary seemed like actually kind of most of the game uh and that did get me thinking about like well why don't I feel like that as much in, um, you know, in a game like Lords of Waterdeep, where the action is passing around uh, the same way? Uh, can a Waterdeep game can can go on for a while? Yet I've never really felt that way during a Waterdeep game. Uh, why don't I ever feel that way during a Seven Wonders game? Um, all right, let me try to let me try to break this all down as best game, I can. Game therapist Rob Davio. All right, you're in a safe <laughs> space. You're going to be okay. Not all games will suit you. How many people are you playing Legendary with? Uh, five. Right. That's so, a three-player game. Yeah, so some games <laughs> scale well, and some games don't scale well, and some games have a perfect sweet spot, you know, and some just get a little bit wobbly. I have played the Marvel Comics version of Legendary a couple times, and I have discovered as you get more people, it is easier to tune out because it's a cooperative game, so you smell, feel like a relatively small cog and a big engine that's going on and you feel like you're not really contributing much to the adventure so it could be if you played that with two or three you'd get a different experience you may not but i suspect that that game is the case and i would also say the same is true of lords of Waterdeep, a game i really particularly enjoy but five players is that the max you can play 
Yeah, six. Six. Well, there's an expansion, but good God, why would you want Yeah, to? yeah, no, I think it's five without the expansion. And I remember every time I played it with five, the, the first few turns go so quickly, and all of a sudden I'm like, it's an hour and a half, and we're still on round five. Like, it does sort of slog. That said, being a competitive game, I can live in my headspace and be planning out my actions and my other actions, and it is engaging me to stay really alert so I don't miss my opportunity of what's going on. And then when someone screws up my move, I have to adapt quickly. Um, what Seven Wonders does very well as a card drafting game is you only care about the people on either side of you if you're playing at the uh, basic casual to intermediate level. Expert players will be judging which cards are going where and, and judge it accordingly, but you can play that game perfectly fine and quickly just paying attention to who's on your left, who's on your right, right. what cards do you have in and your hand. And there's no mechanic in that game that takes longer the more people you add. Because it's a drafting game, right? So drafting magic doesn't take any longer with three people as it does with eight. Though I'm not sure how you do the math on passing the cards. Um, and and, and that's, the, that's the beauty of that system. But that's really, really rare. Most games really don't scale. It says two to six on the box. They're lying. There's a number that the game is actually really awesome with. And there, it's incredible. I mean, I can think of a handful of games that either evolve with the number of players so that the game is both good and different which that's i think that to me is the holy grail where you have a very different game with six people than you do with two but you care just as much um i I, and most of the games that do actually scale that way tend to be very 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 simple games where where the addition of new players simply complicates the mental algebra of what's going on um, I had never played Six, six Nymphed <clears throat> until this last weekend. That's a game, and I played four or five times. That's a game which is completely different with three people and with seven. Doesn't take any longer and is completely different. And it's awesome in both cases. I, I owe you an apology. I've owned that game since 1999. I have no <laughs> idea why, why you have so not played it no until this weekend. No new games at Rabicon. This is what I'm saying. No, uh, so that was six what? Nymphed. and. I M M T. Yeah, um, it it is um, also the Walking Dead card game is the exact same game with the Walking Dead license on it, which may be a more accessible version to find. It's it's had other other uh, names. Uh, it's by Wolfgang Kramer, who is a German designer. Who did a lot of pioneering Euro games in the '90s and early part of this year. He's continued working, but he's known for some of his work there. Um, so it sounds to me what you're looking for is a game that manages to hit on two axes, which is accessibility and scalability, right? You can get people to sit down and play it and understand it, and it doesn't matter if you've got two or three people or five or six. It's going to be something that you're like, yeah, this will play. And uh, Mysterium kind of fit that bill last winter or summer yeah. for us. Um, that's much more of a party or parlor game than a than a strategy game, certainly. But that one... That one, I think, has a cap, right? I don't necessarily want to play it with six just because of the time commitment. Mm-hmm. But it does it does scale well, and it does change the puzzle when it scales. And it's certainly accessible. Yes. Just and, guess. And, and let's be clear. We're talking about Rob Davio's translated version of Mysterium. Not actually. <laughs> no, this year, the, the American version was there. No, um, oh, yeah, but who wants to play that? <laughs> no, the, the American version adds a few twists that actually, I think, make it a more interesting game. 
Um, there, there's a, there's an individual guessing mechanic where each player is, is having to guess what the other players are doing, which solves one of the problem with games scaling to large numbers of players, which is, I know what I'm doing. Now I have to sit around and wait. And I just, I, I think because this has never come up on this, on this show, because Mysterium is not your classic 3MA show. Uh, I think we should actually take a minute and describe what Mysterium is because it's, it's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so what Mysterium is, is a uh, a party parlor type game where one person plays a ghost and technically can't talk throughout the entire game. And you are trying to give clues to the rest of the players who are psychics or mediums trying to solve your murder. And much like the game of Clue, uh, you're trying to get them to know the location and the wit- and the person and the weapon that did it. But the only way you can communicate is with a a deck of uh, very pretty abstract semi-surreal art that you will give to different players that you're trying to communicate to them with the card you give them, which is a dream, what card on the table they're supposed to guess. So if you, Rob Zachney, were supposed to guess the croquet mallet, and let's say that had a purple background and obviously a mallet's like, you know, got interlocking cylinders, I might give you a purple soup can which I have on a card and you're like, Oh, it's purple and it's a cylinder. I bet that's supposed to mean the mallet. And then you guess like, is this what you're trying to tell me ghost? And you're, you know, the faster that everyone gets the right answers, the better chance they have of winning. It's a cooperative game, including the ghost. Um, But what's neat is it's basically just art interpretation and groupthink in a good way. Uh, it's very maddening as a ghost when, you know, I would give that to you for the mallet and and you would say that. And then David Heron might be like, no, 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 you're not seeing it right. You're not seeing it right. It totally means the knife because it belongs in the kitchen. And I have to sit there and be like, mm, mm, no, 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 it was the mallet, right? That doesn't sound like something I would say given that sounds you know, exactly my, my, what my you would prowess say. at code names. Yeah. So anyway, that that is Mysterium. And when they talk about the Rob Davio version, it's because I got an early copy from Poland the rules were not in English. With no rule, no rules. Yeah. No rules. So it's all language independent. It's just pictures. So I went on the internet where at the time the game had been out like two weeks and everyone was trying to translate either the Czech version or the Polish version. <laughs> and it was really early in the morning. And I'm like, I'm a game designer. I'm going to make up my own rules based on what I'm reading right here and taught it that way. And somewhere along the line failed to mention that that was my made up version. So all of my friends have gone out and bought the game and then read the rules. We're like, this isn't how it's played. It's pretty close. It's pretty close. It's, it's pretty, pretty close. close. But the, I was saying the American version adds this component where, which is not in the European version where, you know, I, I get my clue from the ghost. I've made my choice and said, I think you mean the soup can. Now everybody gets to vote whether or not I'm an idiot. And there's a little marker system, and the more successful you are at deciding whether or not other people are right or wrong gives you sort of an advantage in the final rounds to solve things. So it becomes a cooperative game with potential winners and losers in the sense that some people can do it. And most of the time, I hate that. I've played three or four times now with this sort of voting system. I actually think it makes the game much better with large numbers of people because it engages you as a player after you've made your decision. Because now you actually care what everybody else is doing when they're looking at theirs, not just to be like, oh, well, you know, because I think X, Y, Z. You actually get to vote on whether or not you were right on your opinion of everybody else's clue. I pay way more attention with that voting mechanic in place. Cool. It also sums up the difference between Europe and America. 
It does. Right? Europe is like, here's a cooperative game to solve this a mystery. America's like, here's a game where I'm going to try to solve it and prove that you're an idiot. I'm smarter than you. <laughs> and actually insult you every turn by yeah. like being like, I know you don't have it. You're clueless. Yeah, you're terrible. I understand why you say medium. that, but it's still an improvement. But I, but it, I think it comes back to this issue of game scaling. You know, I think that's it's very, very hard to make a game that is really interesting with two players and even remotely playable with six. So so let's let's try to unpack that. Like we've talked about scaling and we've talked about the idea of being able to maintain um, uh, sort of uh, engagement in the game is one thing. And. And, uh, you know, so we can talk about problems with co-op games, but what are some of the things that we think uh, uh, are common amongst games that we see that sort of, you know, take that that uh, two to two and a half hours, play five people well, and will get played uh, 12 times over the course of four days at RabbitCon? I don't know. If we solve this, I'm going to be a very happy man in my job. Oh, I- I, I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts. Okay. All right, let's kick it. This is this is the, like the a first game one design is simultaneous table. turns, right? Mm-hmm. Any game with simultaneous turns, whether that's a bidding type game um, where everybody's sort of blind bidding and revealing at the same time, whether that's a drafting type game where you have personal information that's different than your counterpart, but you're all basically either by clock or peer pressure going to finish your turn at the same time. Um, that makes a huge difference, right? That's how you go from three players to eight. Because as long as everybody has to do the same thing in the same amount of time, you've removed a large part of that problem. On the countervailing side of that, any game that is I go, then you go, then you go, almost by definition, the more players you add, the longer the game is going to take. No, I, I Maybe Rob can figure out a way around that. but No, no, that, that's what I tend to do is turn-based. And just you saying that, I'm like, oh, yeah, I should keep that in mind when I'm doing larger games. So thank yeah. you. So, so you, know, you know, cooperative games attempt to solve that problem like a, a, an engine like pandemic which is still fundamentally turn-based because it's cooperative i care a lot more about what rob's doing on his turn than i would if it was purely competitive because if i know that rob's not in a position to really mess with me much in a competitive game i can completely tune out his turn and in fact i'll often will i'll go get a beverage i'll go to the bathroom and it will make zero difference to the play of the game and and plenty of games are still great Despite that, um, I've played plenty of games of Advanced Squad Leader where I've gotten away from the table for 10 minutes and let the other guy figure out what he's going to do and come back and then see what he's going to do. It's not like I can do anything about it. So I think that simultaneous turn thing, I think, is 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 the fundamental thing for not infinitely scalable, but largely scalable. I, I think the other thing is that any game that involves lots of interplayer communication and interplayer competition is going to be inherently more engaging with more players. So a game like Chinatown comes to mind where, well, I guess that actually does both things because that is mm-hmm. simultaneous turns for every round anyway. Um, but I think of most bidding games, like even Bonanza, for instance, right? In Bonanza, it is still somebody's turn. They're the ones that pick up the cards and do the thing and start the auction. But everyone has an opportunity to participate in that sort of open field bidding that happens after the fact. And I think that that's really the fundamental key. If it's a game that is more multiplayer solitaire, like uh, Agricola, um, you know, Agricola with five people, shoot me in the head. Yeah. Yeah, Just no way. No way. 
Um, although, you know, I have to say, after a few drinks, we've had a couple of larger games of Agricola that have basically just been playing, sitting around a table and chatting for three hours and drinking sure, wine, right. which but is totally fine. Sounds- so, <clears throat> so let's talk about the 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 turn, my turn, your turn, you know, the third player's turn style style play. Are there examples that we can think of where there is more player interaction? Because you know, immediately the 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 sort of the more strategy game player, I want more interaction. I want to be able to affect. I want to be able to impede, and that would engage me in other players' turns. Um, but it's not something I commonly see in 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 games that that we play and and, uh, and that that take off. And why do we think that's? Why do we think we 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 go towards the simultaneous turns rather than the? I don't know. I I interrupt to impede you style style of play that we see in like Magic the Gathering. Uh, well, it's very hard to design a, a game that allows interruption without, well, the, with a lot <coughs> being s- slower and a lot more friction, but it does keep you involved in the game when it's not technically, technically your turn. Uh, Puerto Rico was the one and it's been 15 years now mm-hmm. who sort of came up with the action selection system, which on my turn, I decide what we're all going to do, but I get to do it better. Right. Right. Because I chose it. And that's a way where you, everyone always gets a turn. Mm-hmm. But one person decides what you're all doing for that turn. And that's sort of a nice hybrid system between I do my thing and then you do your thing versus we all do everything at the same mm-hmm. time. Right. Now, now I saw there was a game of one game of Puerto Rico got played. It's Puerto one of it's one of my favorite games. I love Puerto Rico. How yeah. come we never play Puerto Rico? Uh, <laughs> but no, this is that's but I think the, these are not strategy game issues. These are people at RabbitCon tend to play a lot of these games themselves, I think. And I and I think that's why a lot of games that we brought up tend not to get brought out because I suspect a number of people at RabbitCon have played the daylights out of Seven Wonders in the last couple of years, have played the daylights out of Puerto Rico in the last several years. And so I think there's kind of a, well, we're all here and we're all gathered together. Let's, let's, let's see what's new. Let's, let's try something different. Well, that, that's just the classic game night problem where you, you come to a game environment, which, which, which is not like a planned thing, like Rob's going to come over and we're going to play ASL, but more of a, there's eight people over, what are we going to do? Are we splitting into two groups of four? Are we playing one big giant game? Are we spending, you know, four groups of two? What are we doing? And there's inevitably people who are in the mindset of, I want to learn a new game. And there's other people who are like, I have no mental capacity tonight for learning a new game. And the trick is when you match those things up, because... You know, in the case of Puerto Rico, I think the game that came out, nobody at the table had played Puerto Rico before. So no, for them, no, or, no one could remember how to play or hadn't played. Yeah. <laughs> Many people had played, but it's like, I don't know, like myself included. So I was like, can you explain this? I went, it's been like 10 years. No, I don't think so. I, yeah. I, I, I was basically going to read the rule book at about 110% the speed that they would have. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as I saw them playing like 10 minutes later, I'm like, oh, of course. Right, like all the rules came back to me. Right, but, um, but I think that that's a that's a tricky spot to be in because um, if you played a ton of Puerto Rico, like you said, Rob, but it was a long time ago, you just may not want to play it anymore. And so, if you get those mismatches, it can be really tricky. And we all know that the best way to play a board game for the first time is with somebody who knows it intimately, because then you don't even need the rule book. No, right? the best way is to sit five people down and stare at you while you read it. 
<laughs> Wait, hold on. You gotta. I think these. No, not those tokens. The hexac. I don't know what those. Do. Actually, you know what? Don't punch those out. That's the two player. <laughs> hold on. Let me look again. No, that's the worst. Um, I I have such a uh a, a different perspective on this in that I am constantly playing new games for two reasons. One or two or three. I want to see what new mechanics or mechanisms right. are being used, like what's contemporary so that mm-hmm. I can um, appropriate them appropriately. Um, I want to make sure that I am up on the industry. So if a publisher or someone asks me, have you played this? I can say I played it. And I guess those are really the reason. Or if I'm at a convention, a designer's like, I designed this game. And I'm like, oh, I've never heard of that or played it. That just looks bad. So for me, it's the most pleasant type of homework one could ever imagine. <laughs> is playing all the new games I can, but I tend to play games one or two times and then play something else and then revisit the ones that were my favorites once or twice a year. Um, but I think that there's this cult of... It, I mean, people talk about the cult of the new in board games. Like you play a game and then you're like, yeah, but this new one came out and it's better. And you're constantly learning new things like chasing the high to get the best experience, which is cool because it means people buy new games. Um and you get but to it also, have a job, yeah. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I have a job, but it also means people forgetting the rules to Puerto Rico. Um, even though everyone's like, oh, this is great, I love this game, I haven't played it in 10 years, let's play it. And everyone's like, I don't remember why I loved it, how does it play? Well, I mean, that's that's absolutely the case in, in computer games as well, right? Like, I mean, a few weeks ago, I think we were, I was having a long conversation, either on the show or, or just somewhere else. Life really is a blur at this point. Uh, I, I can't remember when I'm just talking to someone and when I'm being recorded, <laughs> but... Like, I had this conversation about, like, real-time strategy games and, uh, you know, what, like, where, where the genre is at right now, blah, blah, blah. And then just the other week, I went back and started playing um, a great game called Rise of Nations uh, with, with Troy. And we're sort of sitting there, and this is like a 10-year-old game at this point. We're sort of sitting there being like, well, why... Why aren't we playing this every week? This is this is so much better than like ninety percent of the stuff we've been playing over the last few years. But not only do we not play it, but a lot of times we even sort of forget to consider it as an option, right? We, and and I, and I think what worries me about stuff like that uh, as well is not only are you sort of denying yourself the chance to sort of, um, you know, the the one you really love is right there the entire time, and uh, you're, you're you're sort of neglecting them, but. I think also that's a that that's a way that like really good ideas and designs end up uh, sort of being a little bit forgotten, right? They sort of if if you don't see versions of the same idea sort of cropping up again and again, sometimes it almost seems like the the, the concepts themselves almost sort of drop out of the conversation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. Did it's you weird, guys like, play any new games at all? Or, I mean, any old games at all? Or did you only try to play stuff that seemed, like, current or new that you didn't know? Because you're the ones with the sad... So, I mean, I'm talking to Rob and Dave. I, uh, sorry, Rob Zachney and Dave Heron. Um, did, did did you go back to any of those? Because, I mean, they were all here, right? You could have played all the Splendor you wanted, or all the Seven Wonders you wanted. We splendored pretty hard uh, the last time we were staying out at your house. Uh, so, I think I think we I think we might have been splendored out. We collected all the gems. There, there's no more gems left for anyone else. <laughs> uh, 
but I no, I here I here I have to put my hand up and say, you know, I I tended to well, I kept getting pulled into new games. Uh, so I, I I played Gravwell, for instance, which I I, I didn't much care for. Uh, I think the closest thing to to an oldie but goodie, uh, an, an oldie in insofar as you you taught it to me like two months ago, uh, was Chinatown. Uh, and so that was probably my sort of the, the game that I was gravitating towards uh, during during the weekend. But by and large, I was I was sort of uh, just trying out what people were putting in front of me. Why uh, isn't Chinatown constantly being played? It was because <laughs> pretty heavy rotation this weekend. Okay, so 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 is this is this a, th- a thing that I just I just missed? Because um, it's I a game guess, that deserves it, I, right? I like have guess over four days, it got played eight times. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. That's that's not you bad. You got my you got my wife to play it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, not boy. her game. Is she is she not okay with game. us? Is she for, is she forgiving me? Uh, I don't know. I could ask her. Have okay. you forgiven Rob Zachney? Oh yeah. Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, but she was telling about it. She's like, yeah, I agreed to play this game, and then I got into it, and I had no idea it was all about scheming and backstabbing and but negotiation. It, but it and, wasn't. It's all open. It's just finding the best deal. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. Maybe front stabbing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Totally different. China, but Chinatown's an interesting example because that is a game that um, actually feels very rules light. You know, basically things are handed out at the start of the turn, and then the game kind of takes its hand completely off the wheel, and is like, well, you guys figure, you guys figure it out. I don't know if this is legal, uh, but at a certain point, Corey Banks started trying to structure payment plans with other <laughs> players uh, during Chinatown. So Chinatown, if you haven't played it, is really cool. It's uh, sort of a a neighborhood land magnate game uh, where you take a you, you take sort of a stereotypical Chinatown in, in the year 1965. The game goes uh, like five six turns up to, through to like 1970, and uh, you sort of develop the area. And the, the the board is divided into like 70 squares, 80, yeah, something like that, something like that. And they're sort of handed out at random. Uh, you know, in, in in random lots to different players, and so what you get are people with owning these tiny little parcels all over the neighborhood, but you have to build businesses uh, whose tiles are adjacent to each other, and those businesses, once you complete them, uh, bring in hefty revenue. And the only way you sort of administer, like you 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 you, the only way you trade those those plots of land and divvy up those resources and uh, those those business tiles that you select randomly is through negotiation with other players. And so it turns into a, you know, I'll give you forty thousand dollars for you know that uh, for lot sixty two, uh, for instance. But it can get really complicated some of the deals people are structuring over the course of that game as people are trying to like not only think about what that does for them right now but also what that's going to do for them over the next like five turns of the game and so yeah you, you saw Corey get really ambitious with the with the kind of deals he was structuring because uh, he was starting to quote interest rates and uh, <laughs> derivatives <laughs> yeah it was it was getting a little weird that's beautiful um, and I think at a certain point another player uh, just I, I think another player told him he that Corey made a perfectly fair offer but he was rejecting it because of the insulting fashion in which it had been made <laughs> but that I think you've actually hit on another key point here which is negotiation particularly free-form negotiation, can keep a lot of players engaged. That's why diplomacy plays a lot of players, right? Diplomacy would, in any other world, diplomacy would be a two-player board game. Uh, But because of the way it's structured and because it's all about 
negotiation. How many does it play? Eight, nine, seven. And, seven? Uh, that's a weird thing. That you should start diplomacy with exactly seven, which is a very strange way we were talking about player count. Oh, yeah, because otherwise you end up with sort of the dummy people you're just taking over. Well, it's dummy people, and it's it's about asymmetry that, you know, factions, like that breaks down to four versus three or three, two, two, or, you know, anyway. Uh, yeah, you, you need to be able to stab someone. Yeah, that's you need important. to fill a board and then, like, put your first sacrificial lamb out. The guy who gets you drinks the rest of the night. Maybe that's why I always think that, I mean, I often just uh, quip that, oh, yeah, that game plays three best, even if I've never played it. <laughs> I just assume if it says two to six on the box, it's three, probably three, a three, three player or four game. is where it pro- it's like uh, probably plays really three to five with four being the sweet spot. And they pushed it out. Now, I try to be very honest in the games I design, you know, what the real player count is. But, um, you know, uh, you just know it works better some than others and you hope you've played all the variations but that's hard i mean one of the things that that clearly the pandemic system has which you mostly you inherited uh before you designed legacy on top of it um is that you know the difference between playing with two and four people sort of self-regulates because of the game's built-in timer is the epidemic counter um and and so if you have you know, two players, it's actually more like those two players are just taking twice as many turns to get the same right. game done. They're taking the same number of turns as four players to get through the same deck, right? which means they have half as many cool powers because they have half as many characters, but cards go into two hands, not four, so it's easier to move cards around. So you can't be as in many places at once, but you have more hand control. So you're trading some balances for other balances. I, I did none of this. I've just learned like how all these levers work over the past couple of years. And I'm still learning. Had a long conversation today about player count on Pandemic Legacy. So. What is the? Uh, I, I forget now. What is the 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 maximum that you can play Pandemic with? Is it's it... two to four. Two to four. Okay. Two to four. And um, we were originally designing for three to four, and then the publisher said, "Why doesn't it play two like the regular one?" And so we got a group to r- run through it. Actually. Uh, a couple who was at uh, RabbitCon this uh, this weekend um, to to run through the entire two player version and it worked just fine and we took like you know like we got all the data and took all the notes and looked at all the stuff we're like this works and we realized it was in fact a two player game I mean it wasn't quite as cavalier as hey play this yeah it's fine right I mean it's more like pandemic worked and this worked and you know we kind of studied it but with it something that long where they had to play eighteen games. Um, we had we had one group run the gauntlet. So something else I was thinking about when we're talking about that experience of games that get a lot of a heavy a heavy rotation over the course of a weekend. When we were talking about Mysterium, uh, I, I sort of flash back to the first time I played it uh, with with you and your family, Rob. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting there is uh, you guys had sort of created your own your own language for Mysterium, your own visual language, your own interpretations of, of how the game worked. Uh, and when I played it with a different group this, this past weekend, um, it was actually very different how people were sort of approaching uh, the clues. But I, I think one interesting, like one thing that makes sort of a, a, a more, did we ever alight upon a term for games, for, for the games in the, in the rough family we're, we're discussing here? Cause no, I get they're I, not party I, games. No, I, I don't think that there is a term because you're using like light and heavy. I think we're talking about accessible games that scale yeah. well, right? Okay. Regardless of how complicated or heavy they are, there's something that's just accessible 
and you can throw another person in the next time you play and it'll work. So with these accessible scaling games, I think another thing that can sort of make them them catch on is they're games that sort of encourage um, that that growth in shared understanding of, of how the game works. And I'm sort of thinking back to what you, you what you would talk about uh, when you were sort of coming up with Risk Legacy, where no game exists entirely by itself, right? They're, they're, it's always sort of informed by experiences in, in, in previous games. And you sort of formalize that with the legacy system. But I think when, when people, I think a lot of games that, that really sort of pop over the course of a, a sort of a, a party weekend uh, are those games that do sort of promote that 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 growth in, in in shared experience, right? When people are sort of carrying not just lessons in how to play the game, but also carrying in lessons about their fellow players and and how the dynamics around the board are going to go. When they're carrying that into in, into new sessions, I think that can also be a be a thing that really adds something uh, to a game. Uh, yes, I'll say it again. Um. <laughs> No, I mean, games are played by people and people play it above the table. And, you know, if you play a game five times in two days with different people, you're going to get common shorthands. You're going to see strategies. You're going to, um, you know, name something like the Zachney, you know, Gambit or the, the Cory Banks payment plan or whatever <laughs> you have, because that's what makes games cool. And to your point, that's what I was trying to to sort of bring out when I came up with the idea for the legacy games is why does the game always just start over when it, it doesn't have to? But um, what that does, which is interesting, is it, and this ties back to what you're saying is like, why are we playing new stuff is, um, games can be like your favorite book or your favorite movie. Like they will reach a point in your mind where you're like, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm done with that. I'm going to go back and revisit it once in a while because I like it, but I am, I have gotten everything that I want to get out of this game, right? I played it enough times with enough people and learned it or have enough common experiences that there's not much that the game is going to offer me right now. For some people that might be 300 times you play it. And for other people, they'll play a game once or twice and be like, yeah, I get it. It's not for me. Um, and so what I think when you sometimes get new people together, sometimes they want to, you know, talk about the good old days when they played Puerto Rico and sometimes they want to like learn something new as a as a community to see if they can get a new shared experience out of that. Um, sort of like kind of like artsy fartsy designery. But I, I've thought about things like one of the things that bothers people um, in in some of the games I've done, like the legacy games, is I've taken the decision of when you're done with it and given it to me, right? But but everyone ultimately decides that oh yeah I don't play that anymore. It was good, but I've kind of moved on. And I've said no no. I'm giving you 18 times to play this and then that's it. And that's a very, that's a very different relationship between the designer and player than before. Um, but that's kind of off on a tangent for a different show. So I'll wrap it up there. What about competition? So um, um, that, I think the idea of, um, you know, we've, we've gone through the idea of competitive games and or uh, cooperative games and why they can engage us. Um, competition seems like this is a thing that's going to keep people uh, uh, involved in a game, um, even if it scales. I know I do. I like beating people. Yes. Um, my concern, and so I'm going to put it out there, is that at some level, if I'm playing with other gamers, other smart, other smart individuals, if there's five people. I'm 
a lot less likely to win than if there's only two other people, <laughs> right? And there's there's this there's this element of like you put five people at a table in a competitive game, four people are going to be the loser and one yeah. person is going to be the winner. You well, put three people, only two people are the loser and one's the winner. So like just basic on. math. I, I was told there would be no math in this podcast. I'm not really <laughs> ready for this. We're, we're just counting right. five, Rob. Just <laughs> but, 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 I'm but just very stressed. The more, the more symmetrical and open the game is, the more I think you're right. So yeah. this is one of the reasons why um, one of Rob's previous games, Risk 2210, is the most fist fight inducing game in the history of board games. Because it's a game where theoretically everybody's pretty much starting out on the same page and then that quickly falls apart. And so like like in traditional Risk, it becomes very obvious very quickly who is sort of the king that needs to be shot down and who is only in the position of being a kingmaker but has no shot. And so inevitably, even faster than in traditional risk, you have to establish these alliances. And like in any game of risk, those alliances have to be broken before the end of the game because there is only one winner. And and because of the complexity, it's a, it, I think it's easier for people to not realize that they're the ass monkey in the game early enough, and therefore they feel really badly betrayed when that moment comes where they have to realize, oh, I thought I was in like competition for first place, and then actually I'm in competition for last place, and I just got screwed. And when you have asymmetric information or we have asymmetric win conditions, I think that goes away a little bit. The, the, to me, the classic example is the Dune board game where each side is so different and has different rules and different movement systems and different win conditions um, that even if you've gotten knocked on your heels early in the game, there's uh, it always feels like there's a chance. There are not really any huge aggressive catch-up features. It doesn't rubber band everybody into the final half hour of the game, uh, which generally always feels very unsatisfying. Um, but because everything is so asymmetric, it feels like you might have a chance or at least be able to do something interesting and rewarding, even though, as David says, in a five-player game, four of you are going to lose. Uh, yeah, I and mean, that was a topic, I think. David, did you and I discussed this on the Game Design Roundtable about keeping people engaged in the game. And one of the things is if you don't know who's winning and it's mm. plausible that you're winning... Yeah. Right. Like a lot of European games where they obscure either the end of the game or the victory conditions where you're like, I think I might have this, but you're not sure. And then you find out that you're fourth out of five players and, you know, someone won by 25 points or something. But you, up until that point, you thought you had it. Whereas if it's a public scoring track and you're like, well, there's three turns left and well, there's nothing I can do. Mm -hmm. You either check out or you go into spoiler road rage mode, right? Like, <laughs> no, you you're, you're you're totally right. Um, the the sort of the 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 problem or what that doesn't address is the idea of having this game be satisfying, right? Like, once those people leave, like, regardless of whether or not I'm engaged in the game the first time, if uh, if I don't feel like I'm going to if it like I didn't understand why I won or lost, it's very rarely that I'm going to play play another one. The one exception I think for me is the Manhattan Project, which I've probably played six or seven times, never won, don't understand, get angry every time <laughs> Julian wins because he always does. Like he's really good at this game. I don't understand. And I don't know what and that's just a worker placement game. I don't get why I'm so terrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> 
But do you do you hate the game because you keep playing it? No, and I don't. And so, so why? What do you think it is about that game that that keeps me engaged, even though I, I'm terrible well, at I it? I think you're. I think your comment, just a worker placement game, is gives gives the lie to one of the genius pieces of worker placement games, which is a good worker placement game always makes you feel like you're doing something and important and interesting when you put that little dude on the board. Right. right. And I think, um, I think Caverna does this, which is the sequel to Agricola. I think Caverna, uh, <laughs> Rob's giving me the masturbatory yet wank symbol. Uh, which Rob will leave that anonymous. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. You're the one that spoke. Um, I, I think really good worker placement games that are well done and well balanced even if you don't feel like you're in the lead right now, you feel like you've done something interesting and important, and the choice that you've made is still a good one. Um, you know, I mean, what was the game we played? Um, Concordia, I think, has that similar quality where every turn feels like it's a good thing that you had a turn, not wasted. I really liked Concordia. We played that Thursday. I highly recommend that game. Yeah, so. you know, yeah. I think I think what you're what you're suggesting has a lot of merit. Um, I played another worker placement game that I completely bounced off of, which was uh, Carson City, and you know it. It is classic uh, Doctor Moreau. We're gonna take a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of yeah. this and a bit of this, and we're gonna we're gonna put it all together. And that game has this worker placement part, but then it also, unlike other worker placements where you, you know it's sort of mutually exclusive first come first serve it has a die roll right like you can always challenge someone and and oh, I, but that's I, why i love that game <laughs> oh right and, and and oh that that drove me crazy yeah that's something mr heron is not gonna like because it's gonna add un in his mind unnecessary static and friction to a well-honed plan yeah <laughs> <laughs> and randomness right you can have yeah. the perfect plan you can be like i've optimized my freaking turn and you have a lot of dudes in that game like end game there you might have seven eight actions to take and you can have all of them thwarted by some punk oh my with a god gun. no i oh, couldn't yeah. no right why would you do that why would so, you so, like what right. I, I had that happen i played blood rage Eric yeah. playing like Viking dudes on a map game. I played that Saturday night. There were uh, five of us. So mm-hmm. probably I think the most you can play. Awesome four, miniatures. Yeah. Four of whom were new. Miniatures were great. Game was great. We were all drinking. We were all learning. It took forever, but I was having a great time. But that's a game where you can seethe. Right. And I said that it's played in three uh, eras or ages. And you can, you know, you sort of get a new hand of cards for the next age. And after uh, between two and three, I said to Sean Andrich, I said, I'm seething. He's like, yeah, this is a game where it can get under your skin. And I had something happen, which was perfectly within the context of the game. And if I played again and knew it was there, I would be more careful. But as a first time player, you get a number of action points. It's rage, right? And some actions are free and some will take from one to four rage points. And you might only start with eight for the whole age, and this goes up every age. But once you're down to zero, you're out for the round, even for the free ones. So you have to work the free ones in before you run out. So I get my rage down to one and have about five or six free things I'm going to do to end the age, and I'm quite pleased with myself. I go into battle. You play one card in battle, which usually has some sort of Norse god associated with you, which gives you a bonus or something. And battles can be pretty forgiving in both the loser takes their card back and um but your troops go to valhalla but you might get points for having troops in valhalla so there's all sorts of things where sometimes you want to win sometimes you want to lose 
I forget the details, but I played a card and then the other person played a Loki card, which said, oh, it's worth zero. And if they lose, they take one of my rage points and, get, and give it to them. So I went down to zero from my one and then was out for the round, like all of my remaining did six you, things. Did you actually table flip or just internally table flip? No, I did even better. I came back and won the entire game (laughs) (laughs) in the next age but i was sitting there at the end of age two like i was gonna do this i was gonna do this like i didn't know on it but part of me was going yeah that really felt like loki right like i got tricked into battle now you know why it's viking why it's called viking rage yeah uh, yeah blood rage i was just like oh and you know i would know oh i haven't seen those loki cards i know they're in the second era i you know i didn't draft any i gotta be careful to have three or four points or two or three points going into a battle because he might steal a point from me. First time player, I was yeah, that was that was tough. I really like that game. Miniatures are great. So to the Carson City example, and this this is sort of tracks with the conversation we had a while ago when we were discussing Chaos Reborn uh, with with Bruce and Troy. Um, we we had this sort of discussion about forms of luck that can feel like. Like why? Why sometimes does does a certain form of, of luck influenced outcome just like infuriate us, and another we're, we're fundamentally cool with? And I think like Carson City, what that sounds like for me, like the button that like the the button that like a game cannot press for me is um whenever it make there's a there's an there's a system that, that generates outcomes that make it feel like I didn't get to do anything right like for for me just psychologically right. it's okay if something didn't work out if I didn't get what I didn't get the desired outcome but if it feels like the rocket sort of exploded on the launch pad yes yeah, skip uh, a turn skip a turn the worst thing that can happen in a game what yes skip, skip a, turn. a turn it's the worst thing that can happen yeah yeah lose it lose it yeah there ah uh, there someone said something really clever about this it might have actually been eric lang when we were talking one time about where luck appears in the turn and how it affects you provokes exactly that like if it happens like i'm going to do this action and then luck is like no you're not you're doing nothing like that's really hard now a lot of combat games that's exactly what it's about so even then there's usually layers of combat you know well i i still retreated with dignity or i you know kept my morale and it tries to get mitigated where luck that happens earlier in the round, like, oh, I was planning on doing A, but luck's not going to let me. So I had B as a fallback plan, right? And that felt better because you, if you're clever, you've got a couple different ways to mitigate it. I'm butchering whoever told me this, uh, their, their idea behind it. But yeah, luck can be really infuriating used poorly. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I'm guilty of that in many a game I've done, but I try not to. I think, I think, um, Carson specific Carson City specifically, or at least the game that we played, um, every turn is quite long, um, and the game uh, is sort of built upon um, a number of different uh, uh, stages. And so the first stage is a role selection stage, where there's a sort of a, a it's not a bidding, but it's a it's sort of a you 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 draft a character, and that has a special a special um, ability and that really is the start of your strategy you pick that character at the very beginning of the turn with an end goal and then you take turns and you place your workers and there's some land building and it's like this communal tableau sort of building and there's even on the on the city map that you're building there's uh, adjacency bonuses and synergy and every everything 
is about this like well creating this one turn machine and that machine is governed by the state machine which is the board and it has this very like ordered um way in which you resolve all the squares first you do this then you do this then you get guns then you buy land then you buy the expensive buildings all the way down to then you get money then you score points and it's very very clever and Every player you can see has this plan and they go in and they've basically created this um, state machine. That's what happens. But and their and their 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 uh their players or their little cowboys are elements in their state machine that says, you know, if it hits this, then you do this. If you do this, then you do this. And everything is dependent on the other. And what happens is, is that you spend 20 minutes, 25, 30 minutes building these state machines, and then one player's goes well, and everyone else's doesn't. And that's every turn. Give or take, depending on what roles are on there and maybe the play. But what happened in our game, that was the case. And the person that won that game was the person whose machine went off properly. And it so was basically the person, saying it's Robo Rally, the worker placement game. It wow. kind of was. It kind of was. And <laughs> and Robo Rally is a is a divisive game. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you said half an hour, I could feel myself like you know I did a double take. Um, and uh, Galaxy Trucker is a game with a lot of sort of luck, but you throw together a. Uh, a spaceship like like a big rig spaceship to handle cargo across the galaxy and then you flip from an event deck and watch as it all goes horribly wrong and it can have the same thing like between luck and skill and you know some skill but a lot of luck some people's ship can do a lot better but it's like a 10 minute game yeah or a 15 minute game if you're telling me i'm going to spend two and a half hours and have that much static it's it's an interesting it's and set up and, and it was because it was probably of the randomness hour. too, right? Yeah. I, I still think there are some beautiful, elegant portions of that game. I think with three players oh, that sure. know what they're doing, you crank through that game in an hour. Um, uh, it's, again, not a game that scales well because it's a worker placement game where every freaking placement changes the state, as you're saying. And like, mm-hmm. oh, I can't take that. Now I have to rethink everything because it's everything happens linearly. It's not like Agricola where it's like, I take this action, I do my thing. You take this action and then you wait until the end of the placement phase to see whether you actually got to do it. Um, and that's sort of that robo rally quality to it. But I actually, that's what makes me like that game. So uh, as we wind down here, uh, I did have one thing I wanted to ask Rob uh, in particular, uh, which is, you know, Rob, for a number of years, you worked at Hasbro. And yes. you were working on like real party ass party games, like family, like kids, true uh, party games. Yes, yeah. Um, I, I currently publish one too. Fun employed, my company now has it on one game, and it's a party game. Uh, Ironwallgames.com. <laughs> I remember once you you described you described part of your job as uh, designing games that are whose core mechanic was was basically wig out and punch your friend in the dick, um, and uh, only for a very <laughs> short period of time was that sort of the design uh, mandate. Not in those words. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I am curious, like. <laughs> 
what like what lessons did you draw from from making games like that right like the sort of games that for instance probably wouldn't get a lot of play in a three moves ahead type setting and stuff like that yes but like but like how do those design experiences like influence you as as a designer uh you know making these these uh these deeper uh more scalable games uh moving forward um in a couple different ways one it is by and large kept me from being a game snog snob right i can see a board game where people are playing with little plastic animals and it was designed for eight-year-olds. And I'm like, that looks fun, right? There's still something there. You have to put your mind in a different place for it. But, you know, it's just like, well, it doesn't have enough chits. So therefore, it's not a true tabletop battle simulator, right? Know the game for what it is and what it's trying to do and and judge it by that. Um, The other thing is it keeps me sometimes, most of the time now, from deciding to be clever as a designer as opposed to just being simple and good. And and that was one of the reasons why Seafall took so damn long is I got out of Hasbro. I'm like, I'm going to make the biggest, most complicated, most robust game engine ever conceived by man or woman on this planet. And I'm going to make it a legacy game. And it was unplayable. And then I took away and simplified it down to maybe 30% of what I was doing. And it got good. Yeah, and now it ships with funny hats, fake wigs, and you just and punch each wigs. other in the face. Yeah, it's, it's actually just uh, charades. <laughs> That's the biggest surprise. You can open up; it's gonna be a box of props. Um, <laughs> it's it's like a tacky photo booth at a wedding. Yeah, it's just charades <laughs> where all the words have the R symbol symbol in it. You know, like car. Um, no, so I was having this discussion today on a, on a game I'm working on. I was talking to another designer. I'm like, is this cool or is this just one designer to another going, look how cool this is. But all the players going, I don't, I don't, why is this, is this necessary? This just seems complicated. And I think uh, Hasbro and then some good hard knocks is, was like good training to be like, just, just make it kind of simple. Also Hasbro got me really good at being able to summarize and sell the idea of a game to a bunch of people who weren't necessarily gamers. Well, and if you can do that, you just made a gamer, right? Like, right. like that's like people walk into my house who are not gamers and I immediately go through my mental list of everything in the basement. I'm like, what game can I explain in five minutes so beautifully that they become a gamer? And that's half the game being amazing and half the game being easy to communicate. Right. Easy to communicate. But I learned at Hasbro, I never... When I, I, by the end, when I had to pitch a game, I never explained how to play it. I explained how it felt to play it. Because no one wants to learn the rules in a pitch. Like, you know, this is marketing. These are, these are money people. These are senior management. They just want to know generally what the, the offering is, the product offering. They don't really care about the clever bidding mechanics I have in it. So I would get up and just talk about, all right, you're all pirates and you are going to be fighting for this thing of treasure and you're going to be dastardly and you're going to backstab and you're going to, you know, and then I'd be like, and that's how it works. And they're like, yeah, never once did I tell you what <laughs> In my head, did. by the way, this is actually a Don Draper presentation. Like it's Don Draper <laughs> right. giving the game description pitch, like in the, uh, in, or, or like a giant t- board, a boardroom table in wall street. Yeah. You know? yeah exactly. <laughs> I, I would also like to point out that I was, uh, I was an advertising copywriter in my twenties before becoming a game designer. So I did, hone the art of the pitch there. 
Uh, that's great. Uh, so I, I think we'll, we'll leave it there a bit of a, a far reaching topic, but, uh, I, I think it's, it was, it was good to sort of, uh, talk through, talk through, have some, have some talk therapy for, for me and David, <laughs> yeah. uh, about sort of the, uh, the, our, our sort of nostalgia for, for, uh, non-party games gone by. I guess let's call it. Uh, that will do it for this week's episode of Three Moves Ahead, which is produced by Michael Hermes and hosted by the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show or discuss this episode with our community by visiting our website at threemovesahead.net. We'll be back next week with another Three Moves Ahead. Until then, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight. Uh, uh, uh.